Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Vince, welcome onto the How To Money podcast. It's great to be here, Kate. Now, people might have heard about you before, maybe on Glenn's My Millennial Money podcast, but it's the first time you're on the show today. Mm, They call me the oldest millennial in town, and Glenn and I have had a uh, partnership going back some time, so he and I do regular episodes. Strangely enough, the big deep dives where we just sit and talk crap around the the uh, campfire seem to uh, rate particularly well. But it does show that I think that you know, younger people have got engaged with which, with money compared to previous generations. So that's a really good thing. I think the why people like the fireside chat so much is it's just casual conversations about money, which often we don't have in our own lives. And so it's actually cool to listen to people just chatting about money and all these topics that we would love to have in our own lives. Well, they say money's the last taboo. People are happier to talk about sex than about money. And um, that's a bit sad, I think. Now you've got a book you've recently written, which we're going to chat about today. I do. My second book has just hit the uh, hit the bookstores. It's called Live the Life You Want with the Money You Have. A money handbook for a new generation. And the reason for that tagline at the end is that much of what we've been told about money is based on myths and half-truths and deeply based on Victorian era morals, much of which has got very little relevance to life today. And that's why we get advice like cut out your cut out your latte, don't use a credit card, uh, have a side hustle, and you'll be fine. And the truth is, that's not actually what's going to make you successful with money in today's environment. And the world has changed, so we need new rules to to play the money game. Because you can't win today's money game playing by yesterday's money rules. I like that. And I do like the headline of the book. And Vince, I know you have some strong thoughts about the uh, latte or smashed avocado fallacy. Yeah. So we the first chapter in the book is called the latte fallacy. And I call it the latte fallacy because the thought, the, the concept that your morning latte is what's stopping you buying a home is 
a very common theme in finance media where you know, most people say, well, the reason you can't buy a house is because you spend $3,000 a year on lattes and nothing could be further from the truth. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. First of all, the maths is flawed. So if you say, well, $3 a, $3 a day or $3.80 or $4, it's more expensive in Melbourne. In Melbourne, it's about $5.50 or $6 for a latte now. Because um, <laughs> interestingly, my publisher pulled me up on that and uh, oh, the editor, he said, you can't get a coffee for th- – I oh, actually had it was at $3.50 when I did the, the analysis. And he said, you can't buy a coffee for $3.50. And I said, well, every cafe between my home and my office, it's $3.50 for a long black. But in the last – few weeks it's um it's gone up to three dollars eighty or four dollars and so we actually put three dollars eighty in the in the final edit of the book but the point about saying well look it's three thousand dollars a year or four thousand dollars a year therefore over 30 years that's seventy thousand dollars when you take into account that you could have invested it and that's why you can't buy a house well that's a bit like saying that you're you know if you count the calories in your in your latte that you'd put on a hundred kilos over your lifetime just by drinking lattes, which is, you know, no one would believe you told them that, but they're quite <laughs> happy to believe you if you say, well, that's why it's $70,000 over your lifetime. And it ignores the fact that we haven't really changed. So the amount of money that as a house, as household, Australian households that we spend on food hasn't changed since the mid eighties. We're spending more of it out of home, but what we spend at home has gone down to more or less offset it. So we're spending no more on food than we did 40 years ago. So if it wasn't a problem for my generation, it's certainly not the problem that's causing you to keep not to be able to get into the housing market. It also, well, why pick on coffee? We spend nine times as much money on alcohol as we do on tea and coffee. So why isn't alcohol blamed for keeping millennials out of the housing market? And it ignores the fact that there's a whole bunch of other decisions we make that have a much bigger impact on our life. And the, the one example I always use in this is, if you go, if, if, speaking of houses here, if you ever go to an open home and you ask the agent, well, how much will this unit sell for? They'll say, well, this will sell in the low 700s, which is sort of agent code for somewhere between 700 and 750, as if those two are indistinguishable. Well, the difference between 700 and 725,000 will pay for a lifetime of lattes. And $25,000 here or there in a $700,000 purpose is, purchase is not something that most people focus too much on. You know, you, you bid in $5,000 chunks and soon $25,000 just disappears. So for all of those reasons, the latte is not the, the problem. Now, some would say, well, it's just a metaphor. It's just another way of saying what your grandmother would have said, which was, if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. I think I've heard that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, the... The problem with that is looking after pennies is really hard. You've got to make a lot of decisions to look after the pennies. Whereas if you focus on the pounds, you can make a handful of big decisions and you won't have to worry about the pennies. And so if your $3.50 latte is the difference between you paying the mortgage and not paying the mortgage, then there's something seriously wrong somewhere else in your budget. And so for all of those reasons, we just say buy the damn latte. Um, that there are... Yeah, success with money is not about making thousands or agonizing over thousands of small decisions. It's about a half a dozen or so really big ones that if you make those ones mindfully, you don't have to worry about the other ones. And those six are where you live, what you drive, how you prepare for the unexpected, 
how you prepare for retirement, how you make a living and who you marry or partner with. And so where you live and what you drive um, accounts for 40% of your budget for most people's budgets. And so tiny changes there will make huge differences. So whether you spend 700000 or 725000 or whatever will make a much bigger impact on your life for a single decision made once rather than trying to make 365 decisions as you walk past that smell of roasting beans on the way to work or you hit 11 a.m. and your boss wants you to finish this report and you just need to get out of the office. Which leads me on to you know, the way you make those decisions. Um, you know, when we talk about budgeting, the first thing most people tell you to do is, well, split your spending into needs and wants. And the, again, that's what your grandmother would have said, right? And you look after the needs first and then you deal with the wants. You know, I can hear Suze Orman screaming in my ear, you can't afford it. And that's actually a really flawed way of looking at your spending because what that does is it focuses your mind on the little spending you made yesterday, the stuff that gives joy to life, like your morning coffee, and makes you, it downplays the impact of the so-called needs like housing, transport, utilities, food, where you can make the biggest difference to your life simply. And so we talk about spending in three categories. We talk about chore spending, which is the stuff that sparks no particular joy at the time you, you spend it. So you know, paying your annual or your monthly mortgage bill or your electricity bill or your rates or your strata levy, none of those spark any joy to write or tap or direct debit or however you do it. And so we call those chore spending and we really want you to minimize that. And most of that is where you live and what you drive. Because where you live, you know, not only does it affect your mortgage, but it also affects you know, what it costs you to get to work, what you, what's stocked in your local shops, your local cafes. And when we get to creating families, yeah, your kids play with the neighborhood kids. You go to the same schools. You, have the same, you go to the same place on holidays. You drive the same cars. So where you choose to live drives a huge amount of your spending and where you drive, what you drive, obviously. Yeah. So we've got a little benchmark. You say, well, if you can try and keep your, keep your house purchase to five to six times your annual income and keep your car to less than three months income, you can pretty well keep your chore spending at less than half your income. And that works across you know, a wide range of income levels. Obviously, if you're working part-time at McDonald's, it ain't going to work. But if you, uh, you know, for most young adults in the full-time workforce, you can actually make that equation work in most places. A bit harder in Sydney, Melbourne, except, and maybe that six becomes seven. But once you let it get it above that, starts to cause a whole bunch of problems. So that's chore. They're the ones you want to get as little as possible in there. Yeah. And then the the next one is what we call live expenses. And this is the stuff that makes life worth living and hence the name of the book. And this is where you really <laughs> want to- need a few of those. <laughs> this is the stuff that sparks joy. And this yeah. is the stuff that is mostly decisions that you make each month. So it's, you know, do I buy this coffee or don't I? Do I, do I go for cocktails on Friday night? Do I- do I go to this festival? They're decisions that we make day to day and the activity or even the paying for it sparks some joy. So you want to get as much as possible in that space. And I break those down into what I call looking good, feeling good, going out, staying in. So looking good is you know clothing, beauty, all those sort of things. Um, the gym. 
feeling good is the gym, massage, all those sort of things. Going out, obviously, entertainment, movies, theaters, eating out, holidays, and then staying in a sort of hobbies and your 600-inch flat screen TV on the wall. <laughs> which has been important over the last couple of years. <laughs> it, it certainly has. And then the final one, which we call grow spending. And this is the stuff to make you feel like you're getting ahead. And if I had a dollar for everyone who walked in our digital door here at Life Sherpa and said, yeah, I've got a good job, but I don't feel like I'm getting ahead. Mm. And so that tells me that there's not enough in the grow category. And we can, and that's usually because there's too much in the chore category. And that the grow stuff is, you know, largely around achieving goals. So paying off your debt, saving for retirement, saving for a holiday, starting a business, taking a year off, having kids, all those goal-oriented stuff. You know, you've got short-term goals where I want a new TV or uh, long-term goals like I want to retire to Indonesia or I want to start a business. And most of those are life goal-based and the life goal triggers a money goal. And so if you can keep your chore as low as possible, ideally less than 50%, you'll live as high as possible, ideally 30%, and you'll grow 20% in growth sort of works really well. Now, obviously, that's not a, a law that says it has to be 50, 30, 20. But if you find that your numbers are way out of that, particularly if your chore is materially above 50, you'll start feeling it. And the words that you use to describe that feeling that something's not quite right tell me a lot about where the problem is. So if someone walks in the door and goes, look, I just don't feel like I'm getting hit. That probably means there's not enough in the grow, which either means too much in live or too much in chore. And it's usually the chore category. They bought too much house or too much car, usually. And if the people say, look, I just there's just never enough money to do what I want to do, that means there's not enough in the live category, which either means they're trying to save too hard or again, there's a chore problem. And we can very quickly work out where that problem lies. And that's why you know, we come back to about living the life you want with the money you have. The, the grow, excess grow stuff, very common. We get a lot of our members come from the, the FIRE community, which I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with, the Financial Independence Retire Early, which is a people with a, a goal to retire early, and therefore they save more and more and more of their income, which can often lead to a a feeling of I'm not living enough or worse that you actually achieve the goal and you go, well, is that it? So am I, what am I, am I, what am I retiring to that retiring from something is one thing, but it's not a particularly um, useful goal to know that when you've got there that you've achieved it and it was been worthwhile. I know lots of people who myself included, who've got to, uh, got to retirement and went, hmm, is that it? And so the first time I lasted three months, <laughs> the second time I lasted a couple of years, and uh, that led me back to creating Life Sherpa. So I always, you know, when we talk about what's, what, what, what is enough, and enough has got three components. It's enough money to sleep at night, which is the bit that most people focus on, enough purpose to get you up in the morning, which is the bit that most people lose when they retire. We get so much of our purpose from, from our families or from our jobs and enough joy to sustain you through the day. So if you got there by saving every cent and you, you don't get to take your foot off that brake and enjoy yourself. So you know, I'm all for financial independence. Everybody, everybody, it, financial independence is not for a small few. It's for everybody. Everybody needs to achieve financial independence by the time they are unable or unwilling to work. 
and you really have to decide, well, when am I unable or unwilling to work? For some people, you know, they know way ahead of time when that is. Um, but for most people, most people retire at a time not of their choosing, either because they got made redundant or they got ill or their parents got ill or their partner got ill. Yeah. And so understanding what enough is, is uh, really important. And it's a challenge to balance all these things because like looking at, as you mentioned, the chore, the live and the grow categories, mm. it's it's hard to balance them all at once because life keeps changing, your job changes, your family situation, and suddenly you're spending more in one of the categories and less in another. And it, it seems like it's like a constant juggling activity to keep them balanced. It is a bit, um, but when you know why you're doing it, it's important. So you're absolutely right that, you know, when you, you know, particularly if you have a couple where you, you might have a, a baby and one stops working, well, at that point, your chore is going to go way up because your mortgage doesn't go down just because the second part is not working. You still have your car and now you've added potentially some childcare or lots more expenses to it. So at times it will rise. And you know, if you've prepared, you know, pre-saved some money to have some time off, you might even find that, you know, that the sum of the three is way more than 100% because you're spending your savings. But it is about knowing what matters to you. And that's why I talk about live the life you want um, with the money you have, that it's it's about understanding what matters to you and focusing your money on maximizing that that outcome. If you start treating budgeting as a rationing problem where you say, my objective here is to get to the next payday with at least a, a cent or a dollar in the bank, that's a rationing problem. So all you're focused on is um, making sure you don't spend more than you've got. And what that leads you to do then is cut, look at things you can cut. So you say, well, what do I have to cut out of my spending to get to that point? And whereas if you treat it as a, an optimization problem or maximization problem, you try and say, what is the maximum joy I can get out of this pool of money? You'll find that that's where you start spending on the stuff that sparks joy. And by maximizing, looking to maximize that outcome, you won't feel restricted. You'll feel that life's actually worth living and you will achieve it. And the biggest thing is you go back to those six six decisions. You know, most people who come to me with a with a car loan problem actually have a too much car problem. And that it's a natural you just look around the streets, the number of new and expensive cars has really risen over the last decade or so. I mean, I'm a bit of a car guy. I, I like a nice car. Um, and I, uh, but when I bought my first BMW in 1980, <laughs> 1992, sorry, it cost me $45,000. And that was like a bottom of the line, completely stripped out, no leather seats, really? did have wow. power steering. It was a manual. I think it might have had a driver's side electric window, but not a passenger side one. No, no electric Manually seats. winding it down. <laughs> and today, even... The an entry level Hyundai has all of those fancy gubbins and lots of electronics. So what we've done actually is increased the quality of cars over the years, and um, we have actually started spending much more of our income on it. And that's fine. But if you're going to if you want to drive a Ferrari, you um, you got to work out well. What am I? Do I want that more than I want this other thing? Kate Moss said that you got to want to be skinny more than you want chocolate cake. And if if you don't 
not eating chocolate cakes are really hard exercise to pull off. Yeah, and if someone is maybe living payday to payday at the moment and they're maybe most of their income is going into that chore category, how do you move from like nearly every dollar just being rationed on chore-related items to actually having some money to move forward to various financial goals you might have? That's the challenge. And often getting them, the first step is getting your mindset around moving away from this needs versus wants analysis. Yeah. Because if you start thinking of needs, you're going to say, well, actually, yep, my house is a need, therefore that's locked in. My car is a need, I've got to get to work, that's locked in. And I've got to pay my debts and I've got to pay my insurance. So what can you tweak? Well, food is the one of the few, few in there that's movable. And sure, you can cut out the 30% that most people waste, but it starts getting really hard. So what you've got to do is um, sort of come back to those big decisions. The, the big swing number is debt service. So obviously getting rid of your debts is, is a big one. So if you look at where that money goes, you go house, car, food, utilities, debt service. And the debt service is the, the real plus for getting rid of, you know, freeing up some space in your, in your chore stuff. And that sort of brings on to the, the three types of debt. You know, people often bandy the good debt versus bad debt argument round. And I, I actually think, look at debt in three categories. We've got red debt, red for danger. And that's usually stuff that comes because you're spending more than you earn. And that's the stuff that usually sits in that chore category. And that's really hard to get it because not only do you have to reduce your spending to stop the debt getting bigger, but then you have to cut it a bit more to um, be able to pay off the debt you've got. But that will free up a big chunk in your in your chore. And that's one of the few cases where I, I do suggest people look at a what's usually called a side hustle, but used to be called a second job. And um, that's uh, you know, a short-term solution to that problem. But the real solution is that you can't out-earn bad spending. So if you get a side hustle to increase your overall income, well, actually, all you're going to do is increase your spending to match, and you're actually no further ahead. Now, that's not to say that side hustles are bad completely. You know, if you're a creative and you want to showcase your wares, you're a professional, you want to grow your network, you've got a business idea you want to test at, go right ahead. But if you're doing it to solve today's income problem, then starting a business is the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah, Maybe driving, driving Uber or getting a second, shop, second job is a way to solve it short term, but building that in long term is a, a recipe for disaster. So that's the red debt. Then we talk about amber debts or amber for caution. And that's stuff which is really about making or paying for assets you're going to use over a long period. So your home and your car primarily. So, yeah, don't have too much, but they're necessary, but caution. And then we have green debt. Now, green, uh, if you've done your driving test recently, <laughs> that doesn't just mean go. Yeah. It means go if the way is clear. So, you know, you've still got to make sure there's nothing coming the other way. And that's things like, you know, hex stuff that's going to improve your, um, your earning capacity or future income. So investments, so borrowing to buy, buy an investment property, borrowing to buy shares, your hex, borrowing for experiences that are going to improve your ability to get or improve your job. So all of those things we would put in the green category. And obviously you start with the red first and don't worry too much about the green. So we'd never recommend people, other than very rare circumstances, would I recommend that you pay additional payments off your hex until you get very close to being able to wipe it out completely. So that takes us, so that's a long way around answering your question about, well, what do I do? So, <laughs> 
if you're renting, it's obviously much easier to you know, move somewhere that's 20 or $30 a week cheaper, recognizing it's potentially going to cost you $1,000 to move and your furniture ain't going to fit in the new unit. So, yeah. There's always those hidden costs there. There right? is. <laughs> and so, you're moving for $10 a week is probably not a good answer. And then at the time you choose to buy your property, that's that's a critical point. And the old story that you know your grandmother would have said is buy the biggest property you can you can afford, even if you have to stretch a little to do it. And that made a huge amount of sense in in the high inflation eighties when you know incomes and values were rising rapidly. So I I borrowed ten times my income to pay for my first property. I borrowed one hundred and five percent of the purchase price, and I needed two flatmates to pay the pay the bills. But you know, within three years, my pay had tripled, and that was despite you know, interest rates at thirteen percent, inflation at seventeen, and unemployment at twenty two. Um, so now that's you know that's not a a say. Well, it was easier for for us or easier for people <laughs> today. That was just the fact of life. You can't borrow ten times your income today. So it's. And certainly, if you work out the maths, borrowing 10 times your income is 13%, that is way more than a 50% chore. And you know, no sane bank will lend that to you today. In fact, it's probably illegal. <laughs> yeah, probably. But the point, of, the point of that story is that because inflation was running so high and graduate salaries moved much more quickly back then, that you know, within three years, it wasn't a big deal at all. And whereas today... If you pay a little bit too much or you borrow a little bit too much, it will take a long time for that problem to work its way out of the system through when you've got you know relatively stagnant wages and a compression between new graduate salaries and five five to ten year experience graduates. So that's part of what I mean when I say the world has changed and we need new rules. So listening to the traditional recommendation, buy the biggest house you can. Yeah, you know, the the old rules used to say buy the biggest house you can afford, and buy the cheapest car your ego can afford. Now that second one still applies, but the first one I think is dangerous in today's environment. It's interesting how many of those old sayings that are still around our parents are telling them to us, our family, friends, and they get stuck in our head. Um, even like one of the dangerous ones that I've heard quite a lot of times is the cash is king one. Yeah, and in fact, you know, with the return of a little bit of inflation, that's even less true. Yeah. And um, as I said, when I graduated, inflation was 17%. So you certainly didn't want to... Imagine that. <laughs> well, we had 5.1 this year, although it's probably closer to three and a bit in reality, but the headline number is 5.1. And around the world, we're seeing high single digit numbers. But that's a long way from yeah, 17 in a... This wasn't in Australia. This yeah. was growing, growing in an island. I don't think Australian inflation got anywhere near that high. But it certainly did in in Europe and the US, and that just changes the dynamic. So back then, you might have got you know eight percent in the bank. You paid thirteen percent on your mortgage. So interest free credit at Harvey Norman was worth every cent of it because you're going to pay it back with money that's worth seventeen percent less in a year's time. That's not what's happening today, and credit card interest rates haven't fallen. Credit card interest rates were twenty four percent in nineteen eighty three. They're still twenty twenty two. Home loan rates are half, about a sixth of what they were, at least a fifth of what they were. So, you know, as you say, those sayings can be very dangerous. And there's so, a lot of them have a, a veneer of 
well, that makes sense. Yeah. Especially the look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves seems so intuitively correct. And why your morning latte is going to cost you $70,000 just seems right until you scratch away in the surface or scratch the surface away and look at what's actually underneath. A lot of those things made a huge amount of sense in the Victorian era when you went to jail if you didn't pay off your debts. So anyone who's read any Dickens <laughs> or any Victorian literature will know the horrors of the the work the workhouse and debtors' prison. You know, we haven't had that for a hundred years. So let's stop thinking in Victorian terms. <laughs> you know, we uh, the uh, the concept of you know being paid in cash, and when the cash was gone, you had to stop spending. Whereas today we have access to credit. And my first paycheck was actually real money in an, in an envelope. Wow! Yeah, and. Uh, this really cute little envelope where actually you could actually count the money without opening the envelope. <laughs> it was this, this window envelope. With, I can't remember what sort of origami they did to fold the money so you could count it. Oh, wow. But, you know, so my parents and at the very beginning of my adult life, when you, you got paid cash and when the cash was gone, you had to stop spending. Mm-hmm. Whereas today we have easy access to credit, which makes life a lot easier, you know, sort of furnishing your home buying a car, all those things are much harder with cash. I wouldn't want to be encouraging us to move back to an era when the government regulated how much home loans you how much home, home loan you could have and that you could only spend cash. So there are pluses and minuses in all of this, but you know, it does mean we have to think differently. And the need needs and wants and pennies rather than pounds are two of the biggest ones. And then along with the biggest house you can afford. Yeah, yeah. Someone mentioned that one to me the other day, and I was like, "Yeah, probably not. That's not the way I want to do it." But anyway, <laughs> I mean, it sort of has a superficial track because house prices have historically gone up, particularly in the last forty years, and you feel richer because you say, well, "Look, I, I might have paid seven hundred thousand dollars to you this year, but it's worth eight hundred thousand in two years. I'm now hundred thousand dollars better off." Well, actually, what most of that is is the alternative rent you would have had to pay if you didn't own it's gone up. So it's not real money until you can actually stop buying housing services. Because if you moved out, you'd be paying more. It's only at the point you come to downsize can you extract that money from the housing market. And the number of people who I've seen over the years whose retirement plan was that we were going to downsize and use the cash to live on, you know, the number of people who get to get the kids off their hands, get to retire, and go, oh, I've had so many memories in this house. I don't really want to leave. Oh, and the grandkids want to come back. And people just don't do it. I mean, so some people, of course, do. And you know, the, the sea change and tree change we've seen is part of that. But there are a lot of people who get to 65 or 70 and just don't want to leave the family home. So just drive through the leafy northern suburbs of Sydney and see the number of single-occupied big houses in Taramara, Warunga, Pimble. I'm sure that you'll find the same in Hawthorne and Kew in Melbourne. Yeah, seems a bit sad to have such a large house with only a couple of people left in it. They feel I feel like they need to be filled with life. I must be. I'm enjoying being an empty nester and downsizing to a two-bedroom unit um, from the big family home. I find it quite liberating. <laughs> yeah, easy to lock up and leave. So they're the they're the big diff things that have changed access to credit and you know speaking of 
credit inflation. I mean, if you look at, well, why have houses got so much more expensive and what does it mean in practice? Because we actually don't spend any more of our household income on housing than we did 40 years ago. But what we have done is we got much bigger loans. And we got bigger loans because interest rates have fallen. We've gone from single-income households to dual-income households. We've gone from 20-year home loans to 30-year home loans and sometimes 40-year. We've um, all of which allow you to, you know, borrow five, ten times as much for the same monthly payment. And so, usually, the problem is not servicing the monthly payment; it's getting the deposit together. And that's the stumbling block that many of our members struggle with. The bank and mum and dad can solve that for quite a few people, but obviously, that's not for everyone. There are, you know, a sig- or there is a significant chunk of the population who doesn't have parents with um, spare cash or um, big houses. That it's can, a spare deposit lying around. <laughs> that's right. So, um, and of course, you know, if you, as a financial advisor, if you're advising a 55-year-old, you know, well, how, how do I help my kids into the housing market? And you go, well, have you thought about your own retirement first? So that is a big challenge. And I think part of that again, is is media, that we get a bit obsessed about this 20% deposit thing. And so all that stuff you read in the paper about, oh, it takes 10 years to save for a deposit. Well, that's all based on having a 20% deposit. And what's the magic about 20%? Well, it's largely around what's called lender's mortgage insurance, that if you borrow more than 80%, you'll pay this extra charge. But if you compare that to how much the property price is going to go up while you save the extra 10% or 5%, it's often better off biting the bullet and paying the lender's mortgage insurance. There's a bit of a sweet spot at around 88%. So a 12% deposit plus stamp duty is a bit of a sweet spot that it gives you access to a good range of lenders, uh, manageable LMI bill and reasonable interest rates. You can get away with 95%. But your choice of lenders will be restricted. You'll probably pay a higher interest rate and your LMI bill goes up quite a bit. But I think we do need to move away from this obsession with a 20% deposit. It's not that big a deal and it takes a long time. So the difference between saving a 12% deposit and a 20% deposit is half as long again. In the meantime, what's happened to property prices? You might be lucky and they could go down, but you're unlikely. It's less likely than. Well, sorry, in the last 40 years, it would be unlikely to have a period where over five years they have net-net gone down. Obviously, if you talk to someone who bought a house in Perth 10 years ago, they would disagree with that. And you know, property investment is not a one-way street. For example, after the Melbourne boom of 1890, it took until 1962, that's 1962, before house prices recovered in real quality adjusted terms. So it's not a one-way street. It may have felt like that for the last 40 years. Um, And certainly anyone who bought property 30 years ago is sitting on a significant pot of value. What they can do with that value is a a tougher question. But what is the, if you were trying to say, well, what is the structural changes that would drive the same sort of growth for the next 40 years? It's pretty hard to see. But, you know, own your own home, particularly by the time you retire, is one of the big markers of financial comfort. So it's still a goal for most people. 
yes, it's tougher to get the deposit together. It's easier to borrow money. You can borrow more. Uh, interest rates are lower. So servicing it isn't the challenge it used to be. But the deposit is obviously the absolutely critical one. And we haven't really seen too much innovation about solving that problem. We've seen the government dabble with these shared equity schemes, and but you know the the old hundred and five percent mortgages just don't exist anymore. <laughs> so that's a real challenge. And you know I, I have every empathy with people starting out right now. I see it every day in in my business here at Life Sherpa, and it is a challenge. I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge, but it's certainly a challenge for most people, and certainly for People trying to do it as a single is even harder because the housing market has capitalized all of these increases. So every cent that you can borrow more, every cent of extra dual incomes, every cent of women earning more has all been capitalized into house prices because with a market that's broadly in balance or slightly short of supply, the availability of credit and the amount people are prepared to pay and mortgage payments drives the value of property or the price of property. And so where are the changes that are going to see that happen over the next 40 years? I don't like making forecasts, but um, <laughs> it's pretty hard to think of a structural change that uh, would repeat the last 40 years. Yeah, there's a probably a huge amount of discussion to have there. And Vince, That could totally be another episode because I think getting into the property market as an individual um, and not having someone to do it with is a whole new challenge in itself, (laughs) which would be worth exploring further. But to wrap up today's conversation, I just want to know, is there one lesson or maybe a couple of lessons that you really want to leave listeners with today? Well, I think the, the big lesson is about knowing your why. So what, what am I what am I getting out of this piece of spending, whatever that is? So your morning latte, for example, sure, sometimes it's about fluid and nutrition, but more often than not, it's about you know, the company you walk out of the office with the crew at morning tea time. It's the me time on the way to the office in the morning. It's the, the smell of those beans. It's the social interaction with the barista. There are a whole bunch of needs that 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 coffee fulfills. And being able to understand what need you're trying to fulfill is the key to getting joy from your from your money. So stripping away all this grandmotherly advice around needs and wants and just really looking at um, what the need all spending fulfills some need. So before you spend, work out what need you're trying to fill. And it's not always entirely obvious. And that's sort of the number one. And then the other one is knowing what is enough. And because we, as humans, we are hardwired to look for more. And the search for more is always going to result in disappointment, whereas the search for enough will lead to fulfillment. That seems like a perfect place to end this episode. (laughs) Some good life advice from Vince here. And if people want to learn more about you, uh, maybe have a look at Life Sherpa or grab a copy of your book. Where should we send them? Well, it's uh, available in all the books, bookshops. Booktopia will deliver it to your door or indeed Amazon, but Booktopia being the Australian solution, I'm a big fan of. But Dimux, it's available in Dimux. Um, it's available in 
in most good bookstores. And um, if you, uh, I would encourage you to to buy it and slowly read it. This is not a, a book to be raced through. There are a few exercises in it, so it's worth stopping and thinking about the exercises. That is, it's as much about training the way you think as it is about spending hacks. Now, this is not about short-term fixes. Um, it's a light read. It's it's not a particularly thick book, but it's uh, full of great advice for today's life. So it's it's a money handbook for a new generation. And that doesn't mean that you have to be young to read it. It just means that you're stop listening to your grandparents. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that the world has changed and we need to change with it. Wonderful. And if they want to, what about Life Sherpa? Well, lifesherpa.com.au, um, Australia's most affordable financial advice service. We set out seven years ago to deliver advice that was affordable for everybody, wherever they live or work, and whatever they earn, own, or owe. So for as little as $547 a year, you can have your own financial advisor. And that's about 76% less than the industry average. So you can start for free. Your first 30 days are free at lifesherpa.com.au. Amazing. Well, Vince, I'll include links to everything we've mentioned in the show notes so listeners can check it out and have a look at all those great resources from an actual expert that we talk about in the disclaimer. But thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I do have a license. (laughs) Yes, well, that is very important to know as well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.